This week on the Back Table Podcast. Everybody doesn't walk into the tertiary referral center. People don't just come in tagged. I've got a Des Moines. I'm just going to go straight to WashU, Mayo, or wherever. So I, I think, you know, the more we can get a lot of these musculoskeletal interventions done by everybody and the broader adoption, that's kind of the, this old man's mission is to get people, more and more people doing these, you know, because they're horribly underserved. It's not just a, you know, what we call the bone club as to quote Sean Tutton. Let's get people feeling comfortable out there doing these. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by a titan in spine and musculoskeletal radiology, Dr. Jack Jennings from Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Jennings, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jacob, for having me. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you and really looking forward to talking about some some really cool topics today. And before we do, I'd like to just introduce you to the audience. Uh, so uh, as I said, you're up at Mallinckrodt Institute of Radiology in St. Louis. And uh, just correct me if there's anything I'm missing here, but you're Chief of Musculoskeletal Radiology director of musculoskeletal and spine interventions and procedures. You're more recently the president of the American Society of Spine Radiology and the PI for the Motion Center, which is something we're going to discuss. So one question I just need to ask on the front end is, uh, do you ever sleep? And and how do, you, how do you manage to balance all these activities of leading a busy clinical section performing complex procedures and, and being academically prolific. How do you balance all that? Yeah. And I guess the other thing you can mention, you know, while we're combined, we have nine kids. So I think that's the, uh, <laughs> wow. that's the final, that's the other, to balance that all out. You know, I, again, I, we all are busy. Everybody stays busy. And I think, you know, we got plenty of time to sleep after this life. So I think, you know, I just keep moving and, you know, I'm blessed to have a lot of good people around me for sure. Uh, none of this is done one person. That never is the case. So I think it's just keep moving and, you know, and I enjoy this world. You know, I think it's made it, your job is much more fulfilling uh, than just showing up to work every day, you know. So that's my bias towards academia and doing stuff like this. It just gives that positive balance to the grind that we're all dealing with. Uh, but we're all busy. <laughs> That's that's great. I love that. And uh, I should add for the audience that Dr. Jennings is in, or this is a Sunday afternoon, Dr. Jennings is in on his uh, day off to see some patients after procedures this weekend. So I think that's something that we can all really relate to is a fundamental thing that keeps driving us forward is taking care of patients. And uh, especially in this area, uh, just a lot of really exciting ways to help patients that are coming out and excited to talk about that today. So uh, before we begin, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the MSK section at Mallinckrodt? It's a very unique program for a variety of reasons. And can you tell us a little bit specifically uh, about the musculoskeletal fellowship that you have at the program? Sure. You know, I, I'm um, Mallinckrodt inbred from the beginning. So Lou Galula, who was my mentor, who's passed on now, kind of started this, the interventional flavor of uh, the MSK section at Mellencrot. And, you know, he did the first vertebroplasties in the Midwest. So Lou was kind of a pioneer when it came to pain injections and, you know, cement. And, you know, so MSK, we had diagnostic and intervention, even the many years ago that I was a resident fellow. And then 
we this evolved into interventional oncology. In fact, you know, Lou, who was my mentor, we did the first cryoablation on him. I was a fellow, which uh, that was quite stressful. He pushed us. He had metastatic thyroid cancer at the time, and he, we did six lesions. I'm embarrassed to say it took us 12 hours, but nobody had ever done cryo. This is in the days of, I called up Matt Kolstrom and Afshin Ganji, and like, these are the lesions. What? Because nobody was doing it back then. Uh, right. So anyway, that kind of started the whole MSK interventional oncology, uh, which now here today, that's a big part of the fellowship. We have six fellows. And there's a diagnostic portion, there's sports, you know, we do the blues, we did the Rams, but that's a whole sore topic. Cardinals, <laughs> we kind of get, uh, you get secondhand reviewing of the imaging because Cardinals are all private practice, orthopedists, not university, and then the local university. So kids, we have six fellows, they get diagnostic, but we're heavy interventional. We have two places where we're full-time every day running rooms, and then we have a third place where a couple of days a week we do interventions. So it's it's unique in the sense it's super heavy on interventional oncology and cancer stuff. We do pain injections, we do a lot of biopsies, but it also, there's a wide breadth and depth of the diagnostic. Yeah, it's uh, it just sounds like a really unique experience for the fellows. And it's it's one of the few musculoskeletal fellowships that really has a focus on spine procedures as well. So it just sounds like a great experience and along with getting all the the diagnostic as well. And today, one of the things I wanted to focus on was the topic of desmoids. And uh, this is a unique topic, even within the fairly niche world of MSK, interventional oncology. And so you are a widely recognized expert in this in this area published a lot and and have developed this practice and i just like to know what what is it about desmoids that makes them unique and how did you develop an interest and expertise in this area yeah so desmoids you know they're under the bill of sarcoma so the the people who take care of them are the medical oncologists who do sarcomas and while you know, the other term is uh, aggressive fibromatosis. But, you know, while they're benign, they act horribly ornery and connect, you know, like they don't metastasize, but they're very locally aggressive, infiltrating fibrous tumors that uh, can be hugely morbid and actually, you know, end up taking, you know, somebody falls terminal and it dies from them. So, you know, I, back probably now, it's been a decade ago, Systemic therapy, serafinib became the big thing that was going to take care of all these. Well, it hasn't. You know, then we've evolved into liposomal doxycycline. So it's all, and then some immunotherapy, uh, and and surgical resection is was the is the definitive treatment. However, they're so locally infiltrative that to get margins, our orthopedic oncologists and surgical oncologists have it's very challenging. So I think at the end of the day, where we've come now is realize it's such a multidisciplinary treatment of these. And it's, you know, so how we, your second part of your question, at, at uh, WashU MSK runs the Sarcoma Tumor Board. Brian Van Tine is the oncologist who started this over a decade ago, and we kind of, we started it with him. So that's kind of how we got our first, first foot in the door uh, was just being involved with the sarcoma tumor board. But I think is once the, that serafinib trial proved that it wasn't kind of the holy grail and the end-all be-all, you know, more and more discussion. So prior to that, we did them, obviously the extra abdominal ones, and we can talk about that. We treated them. And then once serafinib came, our numbers went down because everybody went to trial and then people failed trial or they didn't tolerate serafinib. And then we, it's definitely picked up. But I think how we got them is like how we got everything, being available and mentioning, you know, hey, ablation is a good form of local therapy if this isn't a, you know, a surgical candidate. And uh, well, that was a long answer to your question, but it kind of all evolved based on being involved in sarcomas and treating sarcomas. And then this, we came, really became a center that a lot of desmoids were sent to. 
Thank you for answering that. It answers a, a lot of the questions that I had. And as you mentioned, the nature of desmoids is particularly challenging because it's not, it doesn't metastasize, but they can behave very aggressively. And certainly ablation is not really a one size fits all approach, but uh, it it's definitely been shown that for a variety of the reasons, difficulty with surgical uh, local control, it can be a really excellent option uh, for some patients. And so could you tell us a little bit about what are cases in which ablation is a good option and why is cryoablation typically uh, the preferred modality? Are there other situations where you'd use a different sort of ablation modality? Yeah, so, you know, the first question is the ideal lesion. Well, the ideal lesion is always with desmoids. <laughs> you don't typically get because those get resected. I feel like there's, you know, the the slam dunks, which I would want the same for myself. I mean, if it's a, they feel like they can get margins, say it's in the, you know, there was a case of a deltoid lesion this young girl had, and it went to surgery. We ended up seeing it because they had a recurrence. But I would I would agree with the initial presentation take this out. You know, they took out part of the deltoid, the infraspinatus, and they, from imaging, look like good margins. And so th those are the, I would say the slam dunk lesions are typically surgery section. The ideal lesions, I prefer knowing that are, you know, those that are not involving nerves. Those are not involving bowel. It loves the anterior abdominal wall. And I would caveat I think all the listeners said we're not talking intra-abdominal ones. Those are mm -hmm. an absolute nightmare. Those, nobody, you know, people don't operate unless it's, you know, somebody's got a bowel obstruction, they have to, because those go hog wild if you touch them, even breathe on them, they go crazy. So we're talking about extra-abdominal desmoids or and those in the extremities. But to me, the ones that I feel much better about are those that are away from any nerves, bowel, or things that you're worried about uh, getting in trouble with that require a lot of added extra technique, thermal protective techniques and those kind. The second part of your question was why cryo? You know, I think cryo is the perfect uh, ablation modality for this for many reasons. One, you can see the low attenuation ice ball. Two, you can sculpt. And, you know, desmoids don't come in these nice geometric prepackaged uh fashion. They're, you know, they're so non-geometric. So cryo is great for that because you can create ablation zones and sculpt them. You know, you can see your margins typically. So that's nice because you want to get a good, at minimum, you want to treat these like you're doing cancer for local tumor control. So, I mean, you want to get a good 10 millimeter plus margin on these. Uh, and, you know, cryo, when you are near structures, you know, nerves are much more forgiving if you do have a thermal injury. So I think that's another thing. And we can talk about thermal protective techniques, but so those are kind of the ideal lesions and not big, but I feel like they're, they always come to you when they're big. Uh, sure. Yeah. I think that's probably a, a situation that's very familiar to many interventional radiologists. Uh, we're not frequently seeing the ideal lesions, uh, because we're, we're the person <laughs> to to handle it because because it's challenging and it's not really amenable to uh, you know either medical or surgical techniques. Um, and I, I would like to hear a little bit more about the thermoprotective strategies that you mentioned. Yeah, I think if I were to mention, if I were to harp on, and I get up on the pulpit uh, and few things is that you know putting the needles down are not rocket science. You know, I think staying out of trouble whether it's desmoids or any form of, you know, it's, it's, you don't have to think as much about this stuff when you're long, you know, renal liver, but anytime you go outside of that, <laughs> you're often in an area where you got to think about nerves, whether it's spinal cord, sciatic, other nerves, femoral nerve, uh, you know, I think so with thermoprotective techniques, you know, we use carbon dioxide gas. So that is better than air, but air is, you know, unless you're in Minnesota, air doesn't freeze. You know, so it's carbon dioxide, super protective. And the problem with that is getting it sometimes in the distribution you want. And then we do hydro dissection. Occasionally we'll do balloons, you know, to push things out of the way. I will tell you that, you know, bowel is, which many people on this um, 
podcast know about is super sensitive to ice. So be very careful. You know, there are times when I do these anterior abdominal wall ones, it looks like laparoscopy. There's so much CO2 in the oh, abdomen. Wow. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's wicked full of, I mean, it's just, you just keep doing it to keep the bowel away. So I think there, always think that's how you're going to keep out of trouble, because obviously that's the last thing you want to do and protect those nerves. You know, Nick Kurup, my good friend at Mayo has a great radiographics article on all the kind of musculoskeletal related nerves and how to, where they are, when to think about them when you're doing an ablation, musculoskeletal related. And, you know, I, I tell him he should pay me for this because I promote that article more than, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's a great article. So I, I it, really, it is, it's a great article and I, I'd really recommend that one, especially because I always find it really interesting thinking about nerves in the context of ablations and, and most of the CT guided procedures that, uh, that we do, uh, in musculoskeletal radiology, because most of the time the nerve is not really immediately apparent to you. You kind of have to know where it is. So it's one of those elements of interventional radiology where you're, you're going based on your knowledge and seeing something that's not really visibly there. So it, it's a really interesting, unique challenge, but yeah, that, that article from Dr. Kurup is, is a great one. We'll definitely link that in the, in the show notes. So yeah, you definitely. can use, you can use some of these techniques like hydro or gas dissection, sometimes even balloons to move these critical structures out of the way. Do you, do you have a specific uh, system for the CO2 and, and kind of what's your approach? What sort of needle do you use to, to do this CT laparoscopy approach? <laughs> yeah. You know, so we have the, the CO2 canisters in the room and, you know, we draw up by, you know, take the, I guess they're now 50 ml syringes, even though they're the same 60s that we had, they just now labeled them 50, which 60s is an odd number. I take those <laughs> syringes, fill them up. You know, when you're close to the ice ball, if you use a 22 gauge, any of the, it'll freeze over. So I, I use 18 gauge because it will freeze over and then you won't get anything out. So I just really kind of dissect away. And, you know, when you're doing your scans, you keep an eye because that bowel, we're using the example of an down wall, It'll just keep floating back up and getting in the area where you don't want it. So you're often uh, putting a lot. Now, where hydro pneumo dissection will help you sometimes, because remember, hydro will freeze. It's, it's whether you use contrast, whether you use saline, D5W, it's a fluid, it'll freeze. However, you can create this kind of pseudotumor and then you can get locules of the CO2 to stay in there instead of kind of going all throughout the abdomen. So I think it's it's worth trying the combined just to keep stuff in the area. But when that doesn't work, then I just go all out CO2 and try to just keep it floating in there. Sure. So you, you really have to think pretty dynamically in these, in these cases and pretty regularly checking on the status of your, your hydro or pneumo dissection. And, and just to be clear, uh, CT is your workhorse for these cases. Is that correct? And are you using any sort of ancillary, uh, additional imaging, like ultrasounds or uh, needle guidance technologies? Yeah, great question. So CT is a workhorse. If I'm close to the skin, uh, which these love to grow, I do kind of combine, not kind of, I do a combined CT ultrasound. So I have the ultrasound. I can see the ice ball growing because you get the streak artifact from the needles. It's hard to tell when you're getting close to skin. So anything superficial, uh, I will do combined ultrasound and CT. My good friend and colleague, Afshin Ganji Strasburg, you know, he will do some of these MR guided, which, you know, then it looks like a, a nice black ball and you can see, you can see the ice growing and nicely, you know, I haven't been able to convince people here that it's, I need more of my body colleagues to want to do MR guided procedures because you know how everything's finances these days and to hope for me to type an MR scanner. Now we're talking about in the new tower, just having a procedural MR scanner, but MR is really nice. You know, I think then there's no question. You see that uh, zero degree ice ball, but uh, not practical in a lot of our places. Uh, so day-to-day -day use CT, close to skin or things where I'm going to have a lot of the streak artifact I don't feel comfortable with, I use ultrasound and CT. 
Awesome. And I, I was wondering, a lot of these cryo cases uh, end up seeing some very impressive uh, intraoperative pictures just with uh, just dizzying array of, of cryo probes. And I'm kind of wondering uh, what sort of an average case, how many, how many probes would you use? Do you have kind of a personal record for the number of cryo probes <laughs> you've had to use for a case? Yeah, I'm not, unlike my good friend, uh, Jim Morris at Mayo, I, I'm more embarrassed by it than, uh, yeah, so, and your your question is relevant. Uh, Desmoids, uh, that and a Ewing sarcoma are the two two cases that I can think of that I use the most. And I, you know, there was a re- recent in the last two years, a gluteal desmoid that we used uh, 28 probes. Wow. Now, I, I, I will tell you that I divide those into two sessions and why this may be, if I'm tangential, just because I can do that, stop me. But, you know, you get rhabdomyolysis and you've got to be very careful with that. So you've got to check CKs, you got to give them hydration. So I divided it into two sessions, one where I came anterior, one where I came posterior. But that was a cumulative amount and sure enough, you know, this patient's urine turned like Coke and yeah. CK oh, went up in the thousands and thousands. And, you know, we hydrated, kidneys did fine, you know, the creatinine stayed normal. But I would tell you, if you're getting, if you're getting more than 10, think about it. There was a, there was a lady with a paraspinal desmoid who was like, she was an OBGYN nurse that was losing her insurance. And she, she was on Cobra and going to lose her Cobra. So she's like, you got to do this all once. That was like a 16, 18 prober, but I I was not comfortable, meaning I did it. But sure, I mean, we of course admitted her and everything went fine. And uh, this was like six year, five, six years ago. And that thing's almost shrunk into nothing, but it was all wow. paraspinal, covered like 15 centimeters, cranial Jeez. caudal. Uh, but again, I only people that like that is the rep, not me. I, I, I don't feel great <laughs> about that. And you know, it's a, it's a lot of, lot of probes, but it's on an individual basis. And she was young. So anyway, that the typical case, you're probably in the five to 10 ish average for Desmoids. Cause like I said, they're usually hit you when they're big. Absolutely. And, and what a great pearl that you shared there about the clinical management for these, you really do need to be concerned for potential rhabdomyolysis. And so you mentioned, uh, are these patients all getting admitted uh, after the cryoablation? And typically, how long are they in-house? Yeah, so those that I'm worried about, I'm taking out a lot of underlying muscle. And they're, well, and second, they're horribly painful, right? You know, when you do cryo, soft tissue lesions, in fact, Afshin's got a nice publication. You've got to tell people they're going to hurt more than they ever present with. There's a huge inflammatory response. And I didn't mention, we, you know, I also give IV Decadron. I'll give 10 milligrams on the table, four milligrams, a couple Q6 hours falling, and then they go home on a dose pack because it's, you know, it's a wicked inflammatory response and people do not like you. So I, I whenever I, you know, I do the consultation, I tell you, you're going to hurt afterwards. Huge inflammatory response. So I met them twofold for that and for their rhabdomyolysis. So, 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 so I can follow their creatinine, their CKs, and so that I can have that pain under control. So I probably admit more consistently desmoids than I do, you know, the metastatic lesion tumors. Mm-hmm. And when is their uh, postoperative pain typically peaking and, and when do they start to see some relief? Yeah, so it peaks within anywhere, you know, 24, 48 hours. The worst is the, we used to say the worst is the thaw phase, but I don't believe that anymore. I feel like it's that 24, 40 hours and I can never predict who's going to, I would rather be wrong and they're pushing me to go home early. You know, I kept them overnight versus, you know, send them, this is Missouri. So we get people from long distances, other states. So, you know, I'd rather... I sleep better that night <laughs> and hopefully sure. they sleep better. So I, I, you know, but to answer your question, I find it in the first 24, 48 hours and we can get things cooled down and then they start doing better. But can these, some of these are so big that it takes a while for sure. sure. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, what's kind of the time course for the actual 
diminishment of of the tumor after the ablation? Uh, is that a, a process of weeks, months? You know, that's another thing that varies. I feel like some we see, you know, I won't get imaging for six to eight weeks, and that's kind of my MO for even cancer stuff for local tumor control. But, you know, I feel like some, they start melting away quickly, and then others, you know, that I referenced that paraspinal one. It took a good two post images, and now... Now you just see some scattered calcifications up and down the spine and it's pretty much gone, but it took a while. So I'm not sure I'm good at predicting which ones start to decrease the size. And, and you know, my my colleagues, it's our section of reason, the initial ones afterwards can look bigger because of the inflammatory response around. And your, your ablation zone's beyond that. I keep telling them that's not all tumor. That's, you know, ablation zone extending beyond that. But, you know, we all show the great cases where they diminished to nothing, but that's not always the case either. Sure. Yeah. And, and you've talked about a few, a few of the cases that you've done and, and had some success. And as you've discussed, these desmoids show up in such varied places and never really in a conducive place. So they can be pretty challenging. You've talked about this paraspinal one. And I was wondering, could you tell us about a few cases that were particularly challenging and uh, maybe you have some uh, success stories to share about those and and maybe you know because not not all cases are resounding successes could you talk about a more challenging one that was a, a bit more difficult to deal with afterwards yeah you know i the ones that seem to like to grow in the cervical uh, region and along the They'll grow along the nerve roots. They'll extend down into the brachial plexus. Uh, those are the most frustrating and challenging from everybody's perspective. And we haven't talked about those. You know, our goal is complete the entire tumor. And, you know, desmoids are one of those that we've seen and people published on the abscopal effect where you see other desmoids respond. And also, so abscopal effect meaning you get decrease in size of non-treated tumor elsewhere throughout the body. Uh, but also we've seen where you treat 80% of the lesion, well, that part you didn't treat, that also decreases in size. But we've also seen you treat 80% of the lesion, that other 20% goes absolutely wild, crazy. Uh, and there, you know, so I had a cervicals case. We felt like we could get 75% of the lesion. And we did, but, you know, Within six months, that thing took off like wildfire. Not the area we treated, but then it started heading north. So I think my recollection was involving the lower cervical spine. Well, it shot right up, you know, all the way to C3. So, and that can happen. But again, that's not even a beginning to be a surgical case. So, you know, this poor guy didn't have other options. Some of the, I find those in the extremities wicked challenging because it's hard to get away from nerves when you're in a forearm or the arm typically. And, uh, you know, a lot of these are in younger patients, not that it matters that you wouldn't feel badly in older patients, but last thing you want to do is make somebody weak when they're 16 years old or whatever, you know, these people with the gardeners or turco, you know, some of these FAP mutations that desmoids are involved with. So, you know, those are challenging. I had a few of those and fortunately did not take out the nerve, but you know, they, a lot of sphincter tightening and a lot of, you know, we did motor and, motor and somatosensory evoked potentials. And I didn't, I didn't mention that and shame on me with the thermal protection. I gave you all the active thermal protective techniques, but passive thermal protective techniques. Uh, we use motor and somatosensory evoked potentials, you know, nerve stimulation. We put thermocouples, you know, so we put a needle with a thermocouple right next to the nerves to measure the temperature there. So those, those, challenging ones that are evolving right next to the nerve with the active thermoprotective techniques, we've also do passive. That's a, that's a great point. I'm glad you uh, brought that up with the passive neuroprotection. And it, it makes me think of another question. Uh, are these cases mostly being done under general anesthesia or uh, sedation? Yeah. So whenever I'm doing evoke potentials, they're all done under anesthesia. That's torture to fire off all the, I mean, people sure. look like Frankenstein. They've got needles from head to toe. You know, when, when I feel like the lesions, I'm not going to have to do 
evoke potentials and it's decent size, I'll do conscious sedation. Cryo is the silent killer. I can take out a nerve and the patient be under conscious, you know, even minimal to moderate sedation and they won't go boo. You can, you can do microwave or RF and heat is very toxic. Nobody's going to sit there and let you just start cooking a nerve. But cryo, it's kind of like the, you know, the boo-boo on your kid. You put some ice on there and it starts feeling better. Well, that's the same thing with nerves. So like I, when I'm doing cryo, the sphincters are tight when you're around nerves because you, you need to do everything because you can take out a nerve for sure. Yeah, really great, again, to be aware of that. You know, we talked about, you know, recognizing the nerves and the potential for injury. And it it speaks to not just the procedural aspect, but the perioperative management and also discussion with the patient about informed consent. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, kind of talking to patients about things that they can expect, you know, knowing that the pain is going to get way worse at first. And could you just tell us about what's your informed consent process, uh, your discussion with the patient like? Yeah, I think you, you've got to address, you know, what bad can happen. And, and it's always, a you know, you feel like you're focused on that. And it's not, you know, from a, from a medical liability standpoint, as much as just informed consent. And I do feel like, though, you know, I will repeat it. So we do the, we do the consultation and we talk about it. We show images. We, t- we talk about this is where, say, the sciatic nerve is. This is a gluteal, this is a gluteal tumor that extends into the sciatic notch. That's that case that I was talking about, that you know, 28 prober. So that's one thing. The day of, we readdress it again. And, you know, we talk about the things we're going to do to protect it. Still could happen. You know, I find it, you know, radiation's used for desmoids, but not as much. I find it Super important when somebody's had prior radiation therapy, threshold for nerve thermal injuries, much, much lower. So I really overemphasize that when people have had prior radiation in the field. That doesn't apply. Surely desmoids can get radiation therapy, but that's not our go-to. So I think that is super important. You know, I overemphasize that they're going to hurt more. I overemphasize why we're admitting them. We talk about the the renal function, if it's, you know, if it's going to be a big, uh, if somebody is already borderline, depending on what their creatinine clearance is. So we talk about all that, but it, being an old man and done this for a while, I realized that people just kind of, yeah, 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 you know, uh, but I think it's important. And it's not for you to say when it happens, well, I told you, so that's not the point. The point is somebody hears it, you know, you've got a family member there, but it's, you know, I, I think it's important. I think it's good for also being in a training institution for the resident fellows to hear what can go wrong and what we're going to do to try to mitigate and preemptively strike. Absolutely. Really agree with that. And I think it's important to emphasize these things to the patients. Again, nothing to do with, uh, like you said, the the medical legal aspect of it. But so, and these are very challenging cases for a lot of the reasons that you've discussed already. And just making sure the patient knows uh, what can, even if it hope, definitely hopefully won't happen, is going to make the process smoother as, as opposed to, you know, with a, you know, nerve palsy or something like that. No one's ever going to be happy with a foot drop or something like that. But knowing that it's a possibility can, can probably make that a little bit easier to deal with when it does happen. I agree. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about how you built up this practice. Talked a little bit about it earlier. And uh, so I understand these are discussed at the sarcoma tumor board. And uh, so this is uh, mostly the medical oncologists and, and who else is involved. You mentioned radiation oncology doesn't have too much of a role, but can you tell us about the, the multidisciplinary nature and um, how these patients are are discussed in the tumor board. Yeah, so, you know, we have, I feel like now, so many tumor boards, but it's it's for the better care of the patients. So sarcoma, you have medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, and then interventionalists. And, you know, with these desmoids, while, yes, not a true sarcoma, they, for all intents and purposes, that's where they fall under inappropriately. So, I mean, they're from mesenchymal stem cells, so I... They're they're appropriately under and and guidelines are under sarcoma, so that makes sense. And I, as with 
all majority of our tumor boards, the first question is, can this be resected, right? That's, that's, it goes to the surgeons. Is this resectable? You know, and, and that's where we have the conversation and how good do they feel they can resect these? And I think more and more our, our surgeons are, you know, these are just tough to see. I mean, they're tough to separate from adjacent, uh, soft tissue. So they're very challenging. They have these finger-like infiltrations, but that's the first dialogue. And then, then is, you know, whatever trials, is this liposomal doxy, is it whatever, you know, whatever trials are going on here, you know, that's another conversation. And, and, and then we're involved with, is this ablatable? You feel like you can get the majority of this. And so it's kind of a natural progression for the, the for the multidisciplinary treatment. But I would argue to everyone out there is don't do anything in a, you know, in a vacuum. So things, once you build your practice, things will start coming to you directly. What I do is I bring the rest of the team involved. I think, you know, it's just better medicine and it's, it gives you more street cred and, you know, with your colleagues, it's like, you're not some cowboy off and you're, you know, especially those who are on these, you know, OBLs and stuff like that. Try to get your own little multidisciplinary team. It's more challenging. I get it. It's easier in the ivory towers, but I, I think you've got to do that. It's just, it's better medicine and it, it, it's better for you, but that's kind of how we do it. And everybody chimes in and at the end of the day. I think it's not always binary or black and white. It's very gray. Medicine is, <laughs> but I think we all feel good about this was the pathway we all felt is the first way to go out this. And these are what we were going to do second, if that fails. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I really like the point that you made about uh, emphasizing uh, that to uh, some of our interventionalists who are uh, practicing in a different setting than, uh, than academics where, where the tumor board infrastructure is really kind of baked into the institution. And that was one thing I was wanting to discuss because you obviously have a practice where people are coming from all over uh, to, to seek your services and the services at, at Wash U for you know, this very particular problem, but patients with desmoids are, are everywhere, certainly. And so I, I think it does speak to the need to, you know, at least think about how can care best be organized for these patients. There's no question that uh, multidisciplinary is the way to go. Uh, but I really loved what you emphasized that it's uh, academic, quote, ivory tower uh, setting is not the only place where where that can potentially succeed, uh, but really, really great to keep in mind. You know, I, I think for a variety of reasons, you've, you've made the case that the procedure, while challenging, is is not necessarily the most difficult part of the case, and and having those other specialists to to back you up and and everyone to come to a plan on what's the right case because. As we've discussed, these these tumors like there's not really a typical one. They <laughs> they they all require a d- different, unique way of approaching it. Um, and it it sounds like that's really emphasized at WashU. I agree for sure. And so talking about the earlier days of of these treatments, um, obviously there's a lot more great literature now, especially thanks to you and some of the other giants in, in musculoskeletal interventional radiology. How did you go about uh, building this practice when the literature was a little more sparse? Was You, you mentioned that before serafinib, there, there really wasn't too much. And so were the oncologists coming to you and saying, hey, we don't really have anything we can do. Can you do something? Or was it more you saying, hey, we, we have these cryoablative uh, techniques to, to try to meet this need that's not currently met by your treatment. What, what was sort of the genesis of that and, and how things evolved over the years? Yeah, you know, it started out with, which I think is a, one of the biggest deficits we have is education of the oncologists and the, the whole multidisciplinary team. You know, with the desmoids, again, and the other thing that I get up on the poll about availability, right? If you want to be in you know, the interventionalist today is not like the interventionalist of 20 years ago. And interventional ecology is definitely, it's a clinical specialty. You got to be available. And I think that availability opens up the doors for whatever program you want to, you want to start. You know, 
we biopsy everything here. We biopsy these desmoids. So that really is your, if you're trying to open the door for, let's, we're talking about desmoids, well, these are going to get biopsied. You know, nobody's going to treat something this day and age, 2022, without having tissue. So that right there opens up your opportunity to help educate people. And back when there wasn't, you know, it's not great literature, but hey, it's in the NCSEN guidelines. And so that's another opening thing we can talk about. But I don't, I never found, while oncology is so evidence-based and guideline-based, that was never the, the burden of proof. It was more about relationships and people trusting you're going to do something that you feel and that there's some evidence out there that this works. And I, I never felt like I had to, it's more with the third-party payers that I felt like I had to bring out all the evidence and right. yeah. slam them with that. But, you know, I feel like it's about developing relationships and being available. And, you know, that's how you build a practice. And then only the faces change. Is it desmoids? Is it spine? Is it, you know, whatever you know, pain injections, whatever, you know, whatever it is, is a lung, get, you want to get into the lung ablation. I feel like once you become part of that team, it just requires you educating them of this can be done. And, you know, and then they rely on you. You know, I've never felt the burden of proof. I never had to come with them with literature and hit them up with that. And, you know, it's more about just getting a few people that you met or know as your advocates. And then it kind of grows like wildfire. Oh, that's that's a great point. Uh, I really like that. And we recently had Alan Sog on the show from Duke, and he mentioned the the NCCN guidelines that you just alluded to. It's a great point that a lot of the work has already been done, and some of these recommendations are baked into those guidelines. Um, I think it makes it a little bit easier to approach and start making those uh, partnerships with colleagues in oncology. I really like what you said, though, that that's really the most important thing. You know, it's not hitting them over the head with um, a, a trial or uh, success rates or receiver operative curves and things like that. It's it's really coming to them, emphasizing how you can use your approach to provide a service that's filling a gap for these patients. And with desmoids, that gap is is pretty obvious for for all the reasons you discussed that, that make this a really challenging tumor to treat. And could you, could you elaborate a little bit more on the NCCN guidelines and uh, where does uh, interventional radiology specifically show up in, in those for desmoids? Yeah, so, you know, if you go under, you know, the sarcoma, if you go under that, there's a whole thing on desmoid tumors and, you know, in the treatment algorithm, ablation is in there. And, you know, I'll put my little plug. Uh, I know you are talking with our SIO, uh, Executive Director Jenna, you know, so this is the plug for SIO, uh, mm -hmm. shameless plug, but Society of Interventional Oncology has had a lot to do with the NCSEN guidelines and getting, you know, we attacked Desmoid, we attacked the adult cancer, when I say attacked, provided them with updates and things that make them more relevant. And, uh, we've, we've gone a lot, we've gone very far in the sarcoma realm, the adult cancer pain for ablation, you know, now I'm getting more global with ablation, but, you know, and I think that's one of the things that we're very proud of as Society of Inter Interventional Oncology is that, uh, making those headwaves in the NCSEN guidelines. And I will put another little push for the NCSEN guidelines and, uh, you know, I'm not on the panel for this. Uh, we have people at WashU, you're only allowed one per institution on both of those, but there are certain third-party payers when you're doing a peer-to-peer -peer, that if you can give an NCSYNC guideline, they're instructed to approve it. I've sent the NCSYNC guidelines, and I probably shouldn't be saying this over there. It's probably some violation of, but I've given them the PDF for it because they don't have a, a link for it to show them that this is in the NCSYNC guidelines. So that's another little tidbit for people out there when they're trying to get these approved and they don't have that quite the relationship with the third-party payers for doing these in their little network is using the NCSED guidelines uh, for whether it's sarcoma, for ablating of other bone lesions, dull cancer pain, you know, these can be super helpful. And I'm not even sure, Jacob, I answered your question now that no, I ab that. Absolutely, you did. That was, that was excellent. And I'd, I'd like to echo show uh, some appreciation for Society of Interventional Oncology 
big fans of SIO over here at, at Backtable. And in particular, you know, we're talking about musculoskeletal oncology. I've, I've been really pleased to see how SIO has, has really focused on this subspecialty in the last few years and, and really appreciate all the work that's going into that from, from all the physicians involved there. And then also the organizational structure. Uh, just a lot of great stuff coming from SIO. And somewhat on that note, I, I would like to talk about a topic you alluded to uh, a moment ago, probably the single most exhilarating topic we'll talk about today, which is uh, the issue of the uh, third-party payers. <laughs> and I, I'd just like to know what what are some experiences you, you've had dealing with insurance? I've I've heard that this is not an uncommon issue to run into snags here and what are, have you had, I'm assuming you've had situations where you've had to go to a peer to peer review. How do those typically go and, and what are some strategies? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. So I tell you one thing that I do a preemptive strike, uh, and it's kind of the template in my consult notes, depending on what I'm treating is I've got a line of where it's supported the NCSIN guidelines and the relevant literature. I put that at the end. So they've got a little bit, they got the papers, some more recent papers, you know, the cryodesmoid, the European big trial, phase two trial that my good friend and colleague Afshin Ganji was on. And some of the bigger paper, we're talking desmoids now, but I do it for everything that I do that I know that, you know, whether it's Blue, whether it's United Health, Cigna, that I know that they're going to be ornery on. And when you're old like me, you start realizing who's going to be ornery and who's not. And what what verbiage, you know, what verbiage you got to put in there so you try to make it less grief. And, you know, our nurse coordinators and extenders all know all that, the the verbiage we use. But, you know, I think really knowing the guidelines and, and, and working, you're the patient advocate. So I don't get ornery until I realize that the person I'm on with can't do anything and I'm going to have to go to a higher level. Then I get a little, you know, ornery with the, uh, with the physician that I'm talking to. But I really like... I, the preemptive strike, you know, putting this stuff in there, redressing the NCSIN guidelines up front. I even give them the, you know, I'll say SARC D2 or DSMF, Desmoid DSM-4. I'll give them the page uh, where it's talking about, you know, the algorithm of, you know, for Desmoids we're talking about now. But I'll give them all that so that they can do, go to that. You know, I think... I haven't had to do this a lot in my career, but I have done it. You know, these are painful for many people. And I sometimes will give that threat. You know, this is the last ditch effort. All they, I say, all they got to do is come to the ER and we admit them. And then you really don't, you know, <laughs> and then it's, then it's, we treat them. So that's rarely, do you have to do that? I really think, and you establish a relationship over the years with them and then you get less flack, but early on, you know, Matt Kallstrom, again, I look at he and Ash and Gaji as my two major mentors. I got what Matt, Matt sent me his letter that he sent to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota for cryoablation of bone metastasis. So I basically used that. And, you know, so I had people helping me. And like I said at the beginning, it's never, this is a team, right? You, your stuff is done because of a team. And that team and consists of people around the world and your colleagues from other universities. But yeah, Matt sent me that. I sent it to Blue. So then I started getting a relation with Blue that use the same thing for United, blah, blah, blah. So I think preemptive strike is your best, you know, your best method to start up front. Put that information in there so then they don't have to, to try to avoid the peer-to-peer. -peer. It's not perfect, but at least you've given them all the information. When you're doing the peer-to-peer, -peer, you can reference. Say, well, this paper that I showed you, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great approach. Trying to be proactive with it, a little bit of time up front in your documentation can can save a lot of headaches down the line. This is an unfortunate reality of the American health healthcare system. Uh, we're exposed to even as medical students, uh, and it's it's an unfortunate reality. But it's great. We you know this is not a you know sort of cowboy sort of thing of interventional radiologists just saying, hey, I'm going to freeze this thing to death because, you know, why not? We have, as as we've talked about, uh, specific guidelines, we have criteria, and, and those are things that can be uh, cited and 
make it so the patient can get the treatment that they hopefully need. I, I appreciate that you mentioned the aspect of if a patient has pain and we can't get it treated, the, the unfortunate reality of sometimes needing to come in through the emergency room to get these treated. It's, it's a reality and uh, I think something that we have to be aware of, but hopefully that's not uh, something that's frequently needed and it's they can not. go through. Okay. Yeah. Get, being able to go through the, the process with the um, multidisciplinary tumor board and making sure that everyone's relatively happy, including the payers. It's, it's a lot of box boxes to check, but it's nice to hear that you have a, a bit of a system down for that. Jacob, one more thing. You, you reminded me, that's the other thing that I do put in the note. I put in the multidisciplinary discussion that happened. So I, I give, you know, whether it's mantine sarcoma, the orthopedic oncologist, we talk, I put that all in there. This was discussed in a multi, you know, this patient's not a surgical candidate because blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, so, cause we're talking about Desmond's, I really think I put that in there as well as a preemptive strike that this was discussed with a group of people that they'll see these names that paid for, that paid for them to see, you know, that sarcoma dog. They, they should know that these were physicians that are part of this patient's care. But I think that's another good point that you made me think of when you're talking about the multidisciplinary team. That That is part of the preemptive strike as well. That's a great point. Really great point to emphasize. And I, I'd like to uh, pivot a little bit. We've talked about a, a lot of really interesting aspects of desmoids and, and their treatment. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about desmoids? I don't think so. I just, I would, I would push the people out there, especially, you know, in the OBLs and like I said, not at the tertiary referral centers to, these show up, you know, my wife's in private practice. She reads MR, she sees these. I mean, they don't, everybody doesn't walk into the tertiary referral center. People don't just right. come in tagged. I've got a Desmoid. I'm just going to go straight to WashU, Mayo or wherever. So I, I think, you know, the more we can get, and now I'm going to, Jacob, go broader a lot of these musculoskeletal interventions done by everybody and the broader adoption, that's kind of the, this old man's mission is to get people, more and more people doing these, you know, because they're, they're horribly underserved. And, you know, I think now a shameless, the SIO, this is the thing that we're realizing. We've got to get out to the community and get, it's not just a, you know, what we call the bone club as to quote Sean Tutton, you know, people who... <laughs> to, to doing this, you know, people can do that. And I, and we're seeing it, you know, that's why I'm, we're getting more and more people, you know, doing these, but we got to get more and more, you know, it, it's such an unmet need. And, you know, so I think my shameless push would be, let's get people feeling comfortable out there doing these. And all these names I've dropped to mention, people are all approachable, including myself. And, you know, I think this is discussed at, SIR, SIO, you know, the meetings, Desmoids is a very hot topic. So I, please reach out to these individuals so we can, you know, people can feel comfortable doing this. We're more than happy to help. And again, I think I got tangential on you, buddy. I probably didn't answer No, that no, that was, but... fan, that was fantastic. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I, I really love that perspective. And I, I really like that mission of spreading this treatment for patients. And you reminded me of one thing you know, the aspect that most of these patients showing up for the first time, their initial imaging is probably not going to be done at a tertiary coordinary uh, care academic facility. So some poor, you know, community practice radiologist is probably going to be the one in a sense, diagnosing these for the first time. Can you give us a uh, just really quick kind of basics on the, the imaging features of desmoid tumors? so that most of our base audience is practicing interventional radiologists. And it may have been a little bit while since they've taken the core exam and, and seen some images of a desmoid. So what are kind of the imaging characteristics? Yeah, I'm glad you focus on the imaging. Cause that's another thing I get on the pulpit with our body interventional kids about you're a radiologist. So just cause somebody else called something maybe wrong right? Everybody's going to look at you as a radiologist. So desmoids, one of the classic features of them is their fibrous tissue. And that's dark on T1, dark on T2. And you see this kind of infiltrating mass 
heterogeneously enhancing, but that's kind of the classic. Now, where it gets confusing on imaging is when there's not as much of that hypo-intense T1 and T2 stuff, then you're questioning. Now, I will tell you from experience, I feel like I'm, you've put a needle on this and I feel like I'm really good at, because they're dense fibers. The, they will bend a, a 14, 12 gauge needle trying to get into that because they're so rock hard. So wow. I had one recently and a young girl who didn't have a lot of that T1, T2 hypo intensity, that fibers, it's black. But boy, when we got into, cause I was afraid, oh gosh, is this a sarcoma? She was a 21 year old girl, worked at a local pharmacy. But once I got in there, I'm like, yes, I felt, and again, <laughs> it came back as a desmoid. Cause I mean, sure. that's much better than her having a sarcoma, but right. the imaging wasn't as straightforward. So I, I want to tell you that it's not always classic, but from a soft tissue sarcoma, so that's why they have to be biopsy. But when you see this dark, dark T1 and T2, you can feel pretty comfortable. This is probably going to be a desmoid. Then you say, well, what about all the fibrosarcomas? They can have some of that, but again, this is pretty classic for desmoids to have a lot of this dark T1, T2. Oh, that's a great review. And I really love that you brought back up the point of biopsy. I think it emphasizes the unique role that radiologists play in this disease state from the initial imaging diagnosis to the definitive tissue diagnosis. And as we've been talking about the potentially definitive treatment, I, I think it just really speaks to why uh, interventional radiologists should be really interested in this area. Uh, obviously I'm preaching to the choir on that. <laughs> um, but I, I love that story about doing the biopsy and You've done a million biopsies of these soft tissue masses at this point. And so you have the tactile sense to, when you get into something, you kind of feel, okay, that's, that's not a Sark. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting, uh, talent to have. And please don't, uh, please don't, this is not a, you know, uh, this has not been proven, but it is, you do feel, <laughs> yeah. there are a few things just like with the melanoma, when it, your tissue's black, I feel pretty sure. comfortable that pathology is not going to offer me anything new, but. Yes, no, it is. It is It is reassuring, but the emphasis, and I know I interrupt you, but emphasis, biopsy. Always biopsy. Every, don't, you know, our surgeons now, compared to 15 years ago, even like some hemangiomas, I like, this is really, we want tissue. So I feel like that's the gold standard and that gets you in the door as the interventionalist for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It, you mentioned a great article, I believe, from Dr. Kurup earlier about uh, the, the paths of the nerves and, and how that's important to the interventionalist. There's another great article that we'll try to link to that's about basically fundamentals of good MSK biopsy. So and, that's Lou, uh, Lou at all. Yes, Lou, correct. Yeah, that's a, that's a great paper and uh, we'll link to that. It, it's a little bit probably too deep to, to really dive into today, but having a you know, a very thoughtful approach for your needle trajectory and discussing this with the surgical oncologist uh, really keys to basically having the best game plan in, in case something were to go wrong. And just thinking about that, one question I wanted to ask, you know, part of what that's referring to is the potential for tumor seeding, with, which definitely exists with, with certain uh, neoplasms. Is that something you see with desmoids? No, and I'll be honest with you, we rarely see it. And we always do everything coaxial, so that helps. So really you're only going in once with that outer needle. But while it's real, it can happen. I think if you talk to people, I, you know, the, the number of cases that it happens is super rare. You know, I, I liked your point and can't emphasize enough. Talk to the surgeon, you know, if this is something that's going to be a primary bone or primary soft tissue tumor, make sure you're good with what the pathway they want. More and more with neoadjuvant radiations, I feel like some of the, the newer ortho onks and surgical onks don't care as much. The old school guys and girls totally did. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's a Smith-Peterson interval, you know, delta pectoral interval, lateral in the lower extremity, you know, all those. That's why the Ludol paper is good. But to me, there's nothing better than confirming with the person that's going to resect this if it ends up being a primary. So... You know, and again, that also gets you in good favor and good communication with potential referrers for other, for these ablations. Absolutely. Yeah. Once again, it just speaks to the importance of, uh, relationships when, when building these practices. And, um, 
on that note, I would like to spend a moment discussing the motion study, uh, which is a huge, extremely collaborative approach. You were the PI on this study and also includes just the all-star team, uh, including some of the names you've been discussing throughout the show and, and numerous others. So this was a study of cryoablation for palliation of painful bone metastases. Can you tell us about the motion study? Uh, when did it get started? What are the findings and how does this impact clinical care? Yeah, so boy, it's been a, this was a study many years in inception and, you know, Matt Colstrom did the 2013 cancer. That was a prospective cryoblation trial that took, you know, he had the preliminary publication and gosh, was it 2006 or seven? So it shows how hard it is to enroll these trials. Uh, you know, the purpose was to, you know, just solidify the palliative technique of painful of a single isolated bone lesion. Uh, and, you know, the primary endpoint was eight weeks, you know, with a 95th confidence interval of less than minus two, greater than minus two. And, you know, this trial then went out for six months and looked at pain, looked at morphine equivalent dose, so pain medication, looked at quality of life issues, looked at complications, you know, it kind of covered everything. And, you know, it showed significant pain reduction all the way out to the six months, significant pain. Uh, so nothing new, you know, other than, you know, it was another prospective trial to solidify that this is a palliative technique. The interesting thing about it was these lesions were big. If you look, I think it's over 75% or greater than four percent. These are not small yeah, lesions. That's, these are huge. Those are huge metastatic lesions. Yeah, so probably not always ideal for a uh, trial, but it's the reality, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, we tried, we avoided lesions that were weight-bearing because we didn't want to confound it with cement and all that. But, you know, again, with the group of people that work with for over a decade, a great group of people. And I, I think it, again, just solidifies that if you look at all the bone ablation, trial, soft tissue, they've all had significant pain reduction, even in the spine. So I feel like we've shown that. You know, now we're evolving into local tumor control and trying to do some prospective trials with that, you know, for people, patients who are oligometastatic. Uh, so that's where we've evolved into. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a good trial just to end up being much bigger lesions than I would have anticipated for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a great trial. I'd really advise uh, anyone in this area of musculoskeletal oncology interventions to definitely become very familiar with it and and the paper. And really want to give our appreciation to to you and and the numerous other people who have made this happen. As as you mentioned, just a lot of these things that we talk about is cryoablation improving pain. They almost seem self evident to us, but to to go through the proper infrastructure clinical trials to really prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we do is valuable just takes immense and prolonged effort i, I think really speaks to you know we we gave a shout out to sio previously and i'll reiterate that sir as well and uh interventional radiologists just being part of these societies so we can we can really paper that up and, and get that data to show that what we do really does make a major impact for these patients and who often have no other option in the case of both desmoids and uh, painful osseous mets. So th thanks again for all your work on that. And it's, it's really something that our, our listeners should check out. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. I enjoy, this is, like I said, this is a great part of our job and I love talking about this. So I really appreciate you having me. Very kind Absolutely. It, it's been a pleasure. I want to thank you so much for joining us and really looking forward to a lot of our listeners getting to hear about this. And, and like you talked about earlier, I, I would really like to see this treatment, uh, particularly for desmoids, uh, become more prevalent. So I'm hopeful that a lot of our listeners will, will be very interested in this and, and uh, hopefully start to spread the gospel uh, throughout the, the country and, and hopefully the world. <laughs> I agree. Well, Dr. Jennings, again, I just want to thank you for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss? Any any final words before we end? No, thank you. And like I said, uh, listeners out there, always available. Reach out. I'm easy to contact. 
everybody has my cell phone or my email. So if I can help in any way, please do. And appreciate all your support at SIO and SIR. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.